Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we reflect on the intersection of economics, history, politics, psychology, and science. I'm Mark Olbert. And I'm Seth Rosenblatt. We've been having a lot of fun doing these podcasts and are really enjoying hearing from our growing body of listeners. But one of the things we have heard is that we sometimes cover a lot of ground pretty quickly. And so in this podcast, we're going to do something a little different and do a deeper dive into a single part of what we talked about in the first podcast externalities and how they play into the role of government. So as a reminder, an externality is an economic concept because it's an effect, positive or negative, on an individual or an entity that isn't party to a transaction by at least two other entities. Externalities are really everywhere, both positive and negative ones. We just tend to ignore the minor ones. And we also tend to ignore positive ones in general, although there is this concept of a free rider problem, which we discussed briefly in podcast number two. So we tend to focus on the negative ones, ones that are material in nature. But each community actually has its own threshold of materiality as to whether or not an externality is bad enough to be regulated. I've never lived in a homeowners association maintained neighborhood, but I know that they all have rules governing upkeep of property and in fact appearance of property so you can't just do whatever you feel like even though you are the private property owner. Cities have similar regulations, although because they are public entities, the regulations on upkeep tend to be somewhat looser. You have to have really, really bad problems before a city can step in and force you to do something. There are also lots of other examples on the local level involving land use and zoning regulations. Almost all communities regulate how big a house, the nature of the house, setbacks, all that kind of stuff in single-family home neighborhoods. And they don't allow private property owners to build a factory next to single-family homes, for example. Except in places like Houston, where they do allow that and which they ran into a bunch of problems with during Hurricane Harvey. Another example of these kind of constraints on a local level are environmental impact reports, which are mandated by many states, particularly California, which are intended to identify the secondary effects of local development and require the developers to find some way to mitigate those. So the principle behind all of these local issues you're talking about, whether it's a 12-story house, a factory, HOAs, etc., is that what I do with my private property affects other people. So, of course, and there's a ton of examples on the national level, some of which we've talked about, like when a factory pollutes a neighborhood. We've also referenced briefly COVID vaccines. That's the reason why there's sort of a fallacy that somehow it's your choice, because the nature of your taking a vaccine to prevent this transmissible disease is that it affects other people as well. So that's another example on a national level. So generally, externalities are a really good justification for government intervention. In fact, they are almost a requirement for government to intervene in order to keep the community functioning well. That often confuses people because they understand that private property rights are very fundamental under our system of government, and they don't understand how and why the government can actually intervene against those private property rights. I always tend to remind them that no right is unlimited. You know, for example, what I think is our most sacred right, our right of free speech, is not unlimited. You can be held liable and accountable for yelling fire in a crowded movie house if and when it causes people to be injured or killed. Another more prosaic example is almost every community that I know of requires that homeowners have functioning bathrooms on their private property in order to live in them. Why? Because not having a functioning bathroom exposes your neighbors to unwarranted health risks. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. 
Obviously, we've talked about the fact that externalities are good justifications for government involvement, but it also opens a door where maybe the idea of an externality could actually be abused because some externalities may not be real or they may be in the eye of the beholder or they may be a tautology, which is effectively a self-fulfilling formula. What will be will be, or I don't like something because I don't like something. And that's not the same as it being a real effect. Some people may claim that something affects them when it really doesn't, or doesn't in any kind of material, objective way, or is purely inside of their own heads. That's not surprising, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's merely their self-interest at work playing out in a somewhat different way. Or it can be an excuse to be able to resist change for the reasons that we talked about in the second podcast. So I think what we're saying is it's not always about you. Your perception of harm isn't the same thing as actual harm. It could be, but not always. Real harm to you can be seen or assessed by third parties. In fact, that's a prerequisite for bringing an action in any court that I'm aware of. Perceived harms, on the other hand, are really just in your mind. They may feel the same as actual harm, but being part of a community requires that you accept those kind of perceived or internal harms, because otherwise the community can't function well. We all have neighbors that do things that occasionally that we don't like. We all do things that our neighbors occasionally don't like, but we still work to get along together. So what you're saying is just, just disliking something in and of itself is not enough of a justification of government interference. That's right. And personally, I often think that this is a reflection of the fact that we like to think we live in the real world, but actually we live in a model of the real world that we construct in our heads, which is subject to things like hallucinations, misinterpretations, all that kind of stuff. Well, that reminds me of a story that perfectly illustrates this issue. It actually happened in 2008, so about, what, 14 years ago, during what then was called Proposition 8 in California. And Mark, I know you're familiar with that. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I was pretty disappointed that the California electorate actually passed it, because basically what it did is it significantly restricted the ability of same-sex couples to get married. So during that campaign, I was driving around town in my car, and I had my then nine-year-old son in the back seat. And if you recall, Mark, there were lawn signs everywhere, you know, yes on eight, no on eight, yes on eight, no on eight. Yeah. And we're driving around, and my nine-year-old is looking out the window, and he says, he goes, Dad, what is this eight that everyone is talking about and all these signs are about? And of course, I tried to explain it in a age-appropriate way to a nine-year-old. I said, well, it's a proposed law that we have to vote on in November, and if the law passes, it means that only boys can marry girls and girls can marry boys. And he thought about it for a second. And he then said, okay, so if it doesn't pass, does that mean I have to marry a boy? And, you know, I, I chuckled a bit and I said, no, what it means is if it doesn't pass, it means you have a choice. You can marry a boy or you can marry a girl. And then any girls, you know, they can marry a boy or they can marry a girl. And then, again, the car went silent for about 10 seconds, thinking, okay, that was the end of the conversation. And then he pipes up and says, so why does anybody care then? <laughs> That's a wonderful example of that old phrase, out of the mouths of babes. If a nine-year-old could figure this out, it's kind of surprising that it took the adult so long. Well, and it's funny, and I didn't know it at the time. It took another five years before the Supreme Court actually ruled on this particular case. As you remember, uh, a lower court actually overturned Proposition 8, even though it got passed by the voters. So they overturned it, and then the Supreme Court took up the case in 2013, and they struck it down, not actually on the merits of the case, interestingly enough, because of the notion that the party that was bringing the case to the Supreme Court didn't have standing. They said they weren't harmed by such an issue. So effectively, what happened is the court system 
system took five years to come to the same conclusion that a nine-year-old took 10 seconds to come to. <laughs> yeah, that's a great example of courts requiring the people that come before them to have standing of some kind. I think courts have to do that because in practice, by definition, they're adjudicating conflicts between individuals, multi-party interactions. And so they have to focus on what I might call our shared objective reality, not the reality that we each live in, which tends to be in our own heads. And this, to me, is why same-sex marriage is a perfect example of this sort of false externality issue, because it's a perceived harm, but the opponents couldn't actually articulate any real harm, because there wasn't any. In fact, there's all kinds of studies that actually show, certainly from an economic standpoint, that same-sex marriage actually helps the economy, but certainly on an individual basis, no one could articulate that anyone is harmed or anyone is affected in any way other than the two people getting married. It's also a great reminder or a great lesson that we all need to pay attention to the differences between what's going on in our heads and what's real and material. Offending your own sense of personal religion or your own personal beliefs is not the same thing as an objective real harm. But it seems like it happens so often because there's so many other examples on the national level uh, that we've seen throughout the years. Yeah, a really good example of that that I remember was the Supreme Court ruling back in 1990 about flag burning. The court opinion itself pointed out that if the American flag was a symbol of anything, it was a symbol of the ability to express your own personal beliefs of a political nature in a public environment in whatever way you chose to do so, provided it didn't harm anybody else. And clearly that meant you could burn the flag. And alternatively, if all the flag was was a piece of cloth, then as long as you weren't violating pollution standards somehow, clearly you also had to be able to burn the flag. Merely someone offending your view of patriotism by burning a flag is not a real harm so far as the courts were concerned. And hence, the government can't restrict that activity and no one can be compensated for supposedly suffering from this non-objective harm. I always found it sort of strange that this sort of patriotism is invoked as sort of a method of harm. And I know we should probably schedule a whole podcast on this in the future, right? Even the notion of what does it mean to support the troops or not support the troops or claim you do is, is sort of an, an odd concept. And I know this has come up in, in other examples, too. In fact, I'll tell you, as a council member, I always disliked people wrapping themselves in the flags to try and take some personal bias or concern that they had and promote it to be an actual real harm. Think about Colin Kaepernick, who used to play on the San Francisco 49ers football team, kneeling for the national anthem and the, all the brouhaha that erupted as a result of that. People claiming that they were damaged, the NFL was being damaged by the disrespect, supposedly, that he was showing. But even if it was disrespect, and it's not clear that it was, he certainly claims that it wasn't, it isn't real harm. I agree with you that all the political hay made about that was sort of nonsensical. But it is true, though, right, Mark, that the league as a private entity has the right to make rules of conduct for its employees if there's a business purpose and otherwise doesn't discriminate against certain classes of people. And that's distinct from when a government makes such a rule. Absolutely. I always ended up reminding people who would complain about their freedom of speech being interfered with in a private sector environment. Freedom of speech only applies in the political and public arena in dealing with the government. You can be fired for bad-mouthing your employer even if what you say is true. But then also private entities themselves sometimes intentionally use these false externalities to promote their own interests for some reason. Perfect example is Fox News, 
the culture wars that they have spurred up over the last few decades is amazing. You know, whether it's the war on Christmas, things that objectively don't exist, but they're created to somehow imply there's a harm for you, but they're clearly doing it to promote their own viewership or political agenda or what have you. I personally believe the only thing they're after in all of that is getting more viewer eyeballs so that they can sell more advertising at higher rates. In a related sense, I personally also think that a big part of the power base of the right wing in, in the United States currently is a result of trying to convince people that they are victims. Victimhood is just a strategy for building political support. And this all seems part of a trend where more and more we see people using sort of personal religious justifications to allow discrimination against others. For example, that county clerk in Kentucky who didn't want to certify gay marriages, even though, of course, she wasn't actually harmed by that. But even if she did feel personally harmed, she was acting not as an individual, but as an agent for the government. She could have actually just resigned if it bothered her all that much. And that's actually an example of a broader topic of should individual religious beliefs exempt you somehow from being held accountable for how you treat others? That's a bigger topic that I think will be worthy of its own podcast one of these days. Okay, let's pivot back to the local level for a bit and talk about these real versus maybe perceived externalities. So how did you deal being on the council, being the mayor, in sort of measuring either perceived or real externality and balancing all these things we talked about, whether it's private ownership or rights, public goods, what have you? That was probably the single most difficult part of being an elected official. You are forced to, by the nature of the job and the nature of the competing interests and different perceived externalities and whatnot versus real externalities, to strike a multidimensional balancing act. And it's almost impossible to do. In fact, it's the reason why I always tell people that public agencies on a good day don't make good decisions. They make least bad decisions because the difference is that you're balancing so many things. You don't end up with something good. You end up with something that doesn't offend too many people too much. And that's the best you can do. Housing is a great example of that. Without going into enormous detail on it, there's all sorts of externalities, both real and perceived. Traffic is a real externality. On the other hand, adding more housing and causing housing density to go up, that bothers a lot of people who own single-family homes, particularly if you build them in their neighborhoods. That's certainly at least a perceived externality. All those things get dealt with time and time again uh, on the local governmental level. A somewhat more mundane example that San Carlos went through was the adoption of an anti-chain store ordinance. In that case, the externality that was being evaluated and balanced was the notion that we don't want our downtown businesses to be all just local outlets of national chains. We want to preserve local businesses in some fashion. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but it's clearly a perceived externality. And in fact, I ended up opposing the ordinance that was actually adopted because my argument was, if what we're really trying to do is to focus on what the downtown looks and feels like, then let's have some ordinances that specifically focus on look and feel. Lots of communities have those. They don't control who owns the storefronts. They control what they look like so that they all fit in and blend in together. Another example is the whole idea of historical preservation, of forcing a private property owner to maintain something of historical significance simply because the community wants him or her to. 
That's an issue that has always puzzled me because it seems to elevate the notion of sentimentality, what you view as some historical significance, as a real effect, a real externality. And you, the governments do apply it to certain places. Like you said, it could be homes, buildings, what have you. But it does seem to be a balance against this notion of private property because we can't force restaurants to stay open regardless of my favorite restaurant. It closes. Yeah, that affected me because I liked it, but I have no standing to say that restaurant must stay open. So why is there an effect in, in this other in these other cases? <laughs> Although I have to tell you, Seth, I actually had several people approach me when I was on the council and one of our local favorite pizza shops was going to close that they approached me to say, you have to find some way to force that business to stay open. But I had to tell them that that was sort of beyond our purview. And achieving those balances with things like historical preservation is often more complicated because the rules governing how it can be done are pretty nuanced. For example, in San Carlos, there was a historically important, historically significant sign on a local watering hole that the property owner wanted to take down because it no longer fit his business plans. And the community came up in arms about it. We were able to stop the property owner from taking down or damaging the sign or changing it, but we couldn't actually force him to turn it on, which is really what people in the community wanted us to make him do. And the reason we couldn't is because the first part of keeping him from damaging or changing it, that's historical preservation. The second part of having him flip the switch to light it, that's forcing him to quote unquote say something and we'd be interfering with his political right of free expression. Yeah, I get that. I guess uh, I may come from the, the point of view, and maybe because I didn't grow up in this town, that I didn't really see that level of significance. I didn't see that public good or the value of history of that sign. So it did feel to me like even what the council did was probably more than what I would have done. But I guess it just does depends on how much we as a community value that externality, right, and how we balance it against those rights. That leads me to talking about gray areas, because we've talked about perceived versus real externalities as if it's binary. And the truth is, we know that's not true. There are definitely areas that are gray that depend on your perspective. So let's talk about a couple of those. The first one I wanted to ask you about has to do with the concept, we call, talked about the concept of standing. Someone has to be harmed to say they should have a voice. But there are entities in society that don't have voices. And probably one of bigger examples, of course, is children. Children are affected by all kinds of things that adults do. And that's why we have lots of special rules and laws that protect children more than protect adults. We even have laws about how we protect animals because they don't really have a voice. Now, of course, that comes down to a bit of a perception. If you believe that animals should have lots of rights, then you're like, well, then you don't believe in animal testing or even eating an animal, right? A vegan would argue that an animal has an elevated right. Someone who doesn't believe that would say, well, it's perfectly fine, obviously, to, to eat animal meat. But probably one of the more interesting ones is probably based on one of the most controversial topics in American politics is what is the standing of unborn children and how does that affect the abortion debate? Figuring out the notion of who has standing in the abortion debate is a tremendously complex problem. If you go back and read the Roe v. Wade decision, which I strongly encourage everybody to do, Supreme Court decisions are usually not very long, and as they're written by some of the smartest people on the planet, they're definitely worth reading for that reason alone. But if you go back and read Roe v. Wade, you will see that what the justices in large measure were struggling with is exactly this notion of standing. At what point does that fertilized cell get to the point where it has standing and the laws of society need to step in and protect it? 
it's not an easy question to answer. And the reason it's not an easy question to answer is because in general, complexification processes, things that start out simple and then grow and get bigger and more complex are not step functions. It's not like day 37 into pregnancy, all of a sudden that entity is obviously a living, breathing person. Instead, it's a gradual transition. It's human perspective that forces it to say, well, at one point it's a cell and arguably doesn't necessitate protection by the community. On the other end, it's clearly a human being and is entitled to protection. But the fact that it's a transitional process, the fact that it takes over time and there's no dramatic changes is, in fact, the problem. And that's exactly what the justices struggled with. And my takeaway is that they recognized they were making somewhat arbitrary choices in where they drew various lines, but they had to do that because that's what the law requires, even though what they were actually applying the law to doesn't work that way. Another example that may be less contentious today, but certainly it was very contentious throughout much of American history, has to do with the regulation of pornography, where we are balancing individual private transactions against the cumulative potential effects on how women are objectified and maybe other issues. A Supreme Court justice famously said that he couldn't necessarily define what was obscene, but he knew what was obscene when he saw it. That's a hallmark of something where, again, it's very difficult to measure and therefore it's part of a gray area. But it's a challenge because a legal system, by definition, has to work objectively to make these choices and draw distinctions between where an effect happens, where a negative effect happens, and, and to whom it happens. And in those choices and distinctions that the legal system makes, as we discussed earlier, it has to think of public actions very different from private actions when we do that to maximize our own liberty. And the context within which we make those choices changes over time, both because of what I might call exogenous changes, things like technological advances. Doctors can now resurrect people who once would have been declared dead. And because the choices that we make at one stage actually create the context within which we evaluate future choices. Well, again, back to the same-sex marriage example, right? That wasn't that a long-accepted truth of most of society, which was then overturned when cultural changes or political pressures or a combination of all that forced a community to examine its beliefs and come to the conclusion that there actually is no harm to allowing same-sex marriage, for example. And unfortunately, there's still places around the globe that have not accepted that. Yes, unfortunately, that is true. Notwithstanding our analysis. Man, who knew that a deep dive into studying externalities of all things would be as much fun as this has been today? I know I've gotten a lot out of this, <laughs> and, right. and I hope all of our listeners have as well. But I think it might be helpful too, both to them and I know to me, if we recapped a little bit what the main lessons were, the main points are to take away from this exercise today. Sure. We've talked about really paying attention to externalities because they are everywhere and they're really important. But I think for me, the number one takeaway is just to beware the self-fulfilling externality because they're often distractions from the real ones. And they could be intentionally used as distractions like to serve someone's self-interest, which we say not very jokingly, unfortunately, is the Fox News strategy. And well, a lot of ink will be spilt on made up externalities where the real ones, whether it's pollution, climate change, lead in the water what have you, are ignored or, or, or certainly minimized. You know, and unfortunately, it's not just Fox News. A big part of the political process, if you look at it historically, has to do with distracting voters away from one issue in order to get them to focus on something else so that you and your cronies can benefit from the issue that they should have really been paying attention to. I know one of the things that I took away from this discussion today is that public policies in being formulated need to identify, focus on, and mitigate real effects, real harms, not perceived effects and perceived harms. 
We also need to remember that being part of a community means we have to accept things that we ourselves would not do or want to do. Admittedly, that is a personal loss of some kind. And as we discussed, just because we don't like something, it doesn't make it an externality. And worse, fake externalities actually add friction to the system, ultimately making us all worse off. We also need to remember that accepting things that we don't like serves to maximize liberty, because by avoiding making any of us special, as in our personal views and choices dictate what goes on around us, we protect everyone's individual liberties, including our own. Right. And then when we think about policymakers, I think they all should have this framework in their mind such that they evaluate their intervention in part based on whether these externalities are material and real. If they're real, great. Then intervention should be considered. Otherwise, I think their job is to explain why it isn't real, even to reluctant constituents. As I often had to remind my elected colleagues, being an elected official is not always a matter of running to the front of the crowd and screaming, follow me. Sometimes you have to explain to people why they need to change course. Well, that's a great place to end it. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening, everyone. Signing off, this is Seth. And this is Mark. Hoping that this podcast has a real and not just a perceived effect on your life. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net